Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Only six months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Japanese Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto sought to finish off what was left of the American Navy. Circumstances would be different this time, however, as American codebreakers learned of the oncoming attack in advance. At the Battle of Midway, the U.S. Navy turned the tables on the Japanese and scored their biggest victory of World War II's Pacific Theater. Although the war was still far from over, many historians speculate that Midway was an early turning point in the conflict that would pay dividends in the years to come. On this episode, we discuss the Battle of Midway. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, that's hard to believe, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most famous showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast, you can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kreitzer. We're having new members every day. You can keep up with appearances, news, and events on my author's page, bradykreitzer.com. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. We're ringing in the new year right here on Wartime with lots of news, good news, uh, and a lot of good history coming up. So if you'll indulge me at first, I'd like to go over a few notes, and then we'll jump right into today's topic. I've got some exciting news over the last few weeks. I'm happy to share with you now. We're far enough in advance, if you're listening to this as, they, uh, as they're released, uh, to make this announcement and maybe make some plans for it. Guilford Courthouse National Battlefield, a part of the National Park Service in Greensboro, North Carolina, is having a 250th anniversary celebration this March. It's a week-long event. Their Tuesday night entertainment, if you want to say that, their main event is yours truly. So if you live in the Tar Heel State, if you live in North Carolina or near North Carolina, Tuesday night, March 8th, I'll be speaking and signing copies of my new book, Hessians, uh, there at the battlefield. So if you're in North Carolina, it'll be on my website, bradykreitzer.com, March 8th. Uh, Come on out. I hope to see you. Mention wartime. It'll be a good time. It'll be a good time. As always, I have four books available, all available on amazon.com. If you are Thinking about attending the March 8th lecture, I'll be signing copies of Hessians. You can buy them there. Uh, and we've had you know several donations to the website. Um, wartimepodcast.com has more information there. Uh, but it's a big help. So if you're new to the podcast, if you're a, a veteran of the podcast, um, every little bit does help. And I mean every little bit. Uh, because, again, there's a lot of expenses that go into keeping this history on the air for free, um, and I refuse to charge you for it. So, if you feel so kind, many of you have been generous here in the new year, um, it would be a big help. But on today's episode, getting to the uh, task at hand, we're going to talk about a subject we really haven't even touched yet. 
in wartime in any capacity. And that subject is the Second World War, uh, what we call World War II. Uh, in case you don't know what World War II is, just to front load you a bit, it's the single most destructive event in human history. Something like 20 million people who were alive at the beginning of the conflict were not at the end. Many who died were soldiers. Many who died were not. It was an event that utterly and thoroughly changed the world as we know it. It was the defining moment of the 20th century. And it finished really what I believe any remnants at all of the previous 500 years as far as government, expectation from government, the rule of law, and whatever old, very bad habits uh, that the world may have had at that time, at least the Western world. So, that being said, this is a tough conversation. And this will not be the last battle of World War II we're going to talk about. But I got an email from our longtime listener, Chris. I won't say his last name, uh, but we email pretty regularly. And he always provides not just suggestions and criticisms, but really detailed analysis of a lot of the things we talk about. And it's great to hear from him because uh, as someone who specializes in empire, but mostly North American empire in the 18th century, to really get to dig into a lot of the World War II stuff, because that very much is a function of empire, and a result of empire is great. So Chris emailed me, and he requested we discuss the Battle of Midway. And uh, as you know, if you email me, many of you have, I will respond right away. Uh, if you criticize me, I'll respond even faster, but I encourage you not. But I'm always looking to talk a little shop, and Chris, you know, Chris knows that. And it's not, not, not just a platitude, I, I really do like hearing from you. And send a recommendation. Uh, but Chris sent me a pretty detailed uh, email on the Battle of Midway. We'll touch on some of his points today. I might claim them as my own, though. Sorry, Chris. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but he really made the case to me why the Battle of Midway, of all of the battles of World War II, in either the Pacific or European theaters, is the first we should talk about. So I'm pumped. Uh, I'm very excited for this. And and he's right when he talks about Midway. Midway is an important battle. In a lot of ways, it's the perfect battle for us here on Wartime to discuss. So today we're going to talk about the Battle of Midway, June 4th and 5th, 1942. You don't have to know anything about World War II to enjoy this podcast. That's one thing I can't say about most of the material we get on World War II. If you turn on the History Channel, you will find endless documentaries about Hitler and World War II, and most of them uh, do not accommodate or prepare the novice in any way, shape, or form. I mean, you watch that show, you jump headlong into the Third Reich and the Battle of the Bulge and the Battle of the Coral Sea or whatever, and you are given no breathing room. And they will analyze it to the smallest detail, and that is important. But it's very hard to get a lot from those uh, television series when you're not comfortable with the material. It's one of the reasons I made this podcast. It's my job to make you comfortable with this material. So we're going to start at the beginning of, of World War II, at least from the Japanese perspective. So you have some sense of why Midway happens, why the terrible event before it happens, Pearl Harbor, 
what the Japanese are trying to do and why this battle is, as we say, uh, just so darn important. So don't feel like you have to come into this with a lot of information. If you do, great. A lot of this might be review. But if you don't, that's even better. Because what that means is I don't have to undo anyone else's bad work. So we'll make it very easy. If you do know something about World War II, in its most basic form, it is a clash of worldviews. Remember, Karl von Clausewitz very famously said the Prussian military philosopher, war is merely politics by another means. And that's what World War II is above all else. You have a new fascist worldview that has swept through Europe in places like Spain and Italy and Germany. And you have leaders who are capitalizing on a lot of fear and anxieties and trepidations to kind of make themselves the solution to everyone's problems. And the idea is give up some of your rights uh, for basic security and guarantee and certainty moving forward. And that's where a per person like Adolf Hitler in Germany or Benito Mussolini comes from. But they have this grand ideology in mind. Now, Hitler's ideology is nothing to idolize. Um, I fully agree that he is probably the worst human being to ever live. Uh, but he has a vision, and he believes in it. And where you see conflict occur is when someone else doesn't share that vision, like, oh, I don't know, Great Britain, or France, or the United States. A very different view of what the world should look like. And that's many of the big wars in a nutshell. Uh, and that would be really easy to talk about. That being said, it's not. But Japan is kind of different. Because Japan is not Germany. Japan is not Italy. It's certainly not the United States, but they are a major player in what we call World War II. But for somewhat different reasons. So let's first talk about why Japan is an enemy of the West and the United States, in particular. Until the middle of the 19th century, I want you to think about this. Japan's official policy is that it will have no contact with the outside world, unless it chooses to, but it's mostly isolation. We call this the Sengoku period, and it lasts quite a while, lasts centuries. But what it does is isolates the Japanese, not just as a nation. I mean, they are a series of four islands. They are an island nation. But also in the way they perceive themselves. And what you see from the middle of the 19th century onwards is Japan jumping into a world that it really was not a participant in and trying to find a place for itself. Now, the Japanese people fully believe that they are the greatest people in the world. They believe that ethnically and racially they are superior, and they cannot compute as to why these people that are far beneath them, the Russians, the British in particular, and later on the Americans, are having so much success. These are world superpowers as part of a global economy, and the Japanese just aren't. So they want to jump into that. Now Japan, again, is not the United States or Germany or Russia. These are all very big land masses. These are places that produce things to sell to the rest of the world and engage in trade. The Japanese don't have that luxury. They import almost everything. Their exports are almost non-existent. Nothing against them, it's just the way the geographic game played out. 
It's kind of the hand they were dealt. But this is something that is very troubling for them. Because again, they understand that as much as they want to be independent and free and strong, they're really just kind of dependent on foreign peoples they don't necessarily like for keeping their way of life uh, and their competitive stance in balance. So this idea begins to intertwine with a lot of political issues in Japan in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, Japan is still searching for an identity after it sort of opens itself up. They have an emperor, he's weak, different factions of the government um, are stronger than the other. People don't know who's in charge, that's what I'm saying. We'll make it really easy. Um, sometimes the structure of government doesn't really have the faith of the people. And two groups really start to take over in the 1920s. One is the Imperial Army, and the other is the, is the Imperial Navy. And in our world, we think of the Army and Navy as a wing of the people, made up of citizens at our behest, there for our protection, and so on and so forth. But the Army and Navy, if they ever decided to turn their guns on the government, really would rule the roost. Now, we have faith in our system. That doesn't typically happen in the West today. But it's exactly what happens in Japan. The Army and Navy start to exert incredible influence, and they start to... Uh, take over a lot of decisions that the government needs to make. One of them is expansion. See, one thing about the Army and Navy, and this is true of most armies and navies, is that if they're nothing else, they are very efficient. They know how to get things done. They know it needs to be done. They know that if you want to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. That's the understatement of the century. And that's what the Japanese Army and Navy start to do. They start to ask themselves, what is our biggest weakness? And how can we fix it? Well, their biggest weakness, without a, a shadow of a doubt, is the fact that they are a perennial importer. And they export nothing. And to them, that means they do not control their own destiny. And the biggest thing they need is oil. Ding, ding, ding. We haven't come that far, have we? But oil runs the show, and so does rubber, for that matter. If you think about an army, you think about the equipment they need. Oil and rubber are the big uh, sticking points for them. But where do they get that? Well, their rubber comes from Britain. And their oil comes from the United States. And if they can find a way to at least take control of one of those things, along with many other things, foodstuffs, timber, uh, you name it, coal, iron, they're on their way to economic independence. Well, they look at the world around them and they say, where do the British get their rubber? Some of it comes from Africa, but the vast majority of it comes from what is today Indonesia. That's a British colony. That's controlled by Britain. And they say, well, that's right near us. We could easily take that. And they look at their map and they become what we can think of as expansionist. Their expansionism is, is fueled by three things. One is the need and desire for raw materials, controlling those and therefore controlling their own destiny. Two is the efficiency of the military in command. And three, and this is one we really haven't touched on yet, but is a major theme of World War II, is the fact that the Japanese people are incredibly patriotic and nationalistic to the point of suicidal fervor. They will die for their country, and not just because they have to. 
in many cases, it is, it is a desirable ending. And that is something that, as we'll see as the war progresses, that the Americans will not be prepared for. But the military is more than happy to exploit that, that desire uh, to serve and die for their country, and why not use it for their own means. So if I can paint this picture for you, by the time you get to, say, 1940, Japan has built what many consider to be the world's largest empire. They take over most of China, Mongolia, Korea. They take over Cambodia, Vietnam, and Thailand, Indonesia, and as we'll see eventually, the Philippines. I mean, places we would consider to be uh, East Asia, basically, becomes part of the Japanese Empire. They murder hundreds of thousands of people. They are not gentle conquerors. Uh, they commit human rights atrocities still unparalleled in the history of the world. But we're not even at war yet. America's watching this. Britain is watching this. And at this point, they still haven't taken British or American territory yet. They want to. They have plans for it. So the Americans meet with them and they say, listen, we, we know what you're doing in China. We don't like it. If you keep doing it, we may have to go to war. And the Japanese kind of say, okay, but are you declaring war on us yet? And the Americans say, well, no, not yet. So the Japanese keep doing it. This will enter in a person I'd like to talk a lot about today. He's a person that has been often overlooked in the grand scheme of history for reasons we'll talk about. But he's one of the most powerful people in Japan. He's the Admiral of the Japanese Imperial Navy. His name is Isoroku Yamamoto, Admiral Yamamoto. And until only recently, we really didn't take the time as Western historians to understand this man and what he wants from the world and how he views the world. But he very much is the vision behind the Japanese Imperial Navy. And again, for us, when we think of a navy or an army, we think of something to be controlled by a civilian government. But it really wasn't that way. They were calling their own shots in a lot of ways. But Admiral Yamamoto has an interesting history. It's worth touching on. I think it will help you understand things a little more. He was, believe it or not, the son of a samurai. You got that? The son of a samurai. Now, he's a mid-level samurai. Paper pusher samurai. Just kidding. Uh, but he was. So, he's part of a warrior class that is not to be trifled with. And for him to go into the military as a young man is something that makes a lot of sense. Uh, his father would have lived through that Sengoku period, that period of isolation. A lot of the uh, sort of coming-of-age time of Yamamoto would be during this time when Japan's really up for grabs politically in terms of practical power. But he will become a captain in the Imperial Navy. He'll work his way up to Admiral, and a lot of it falls on him. But he absolutely, Yamamoto, believes that Japan should rule the world and he understands that he is the point of the sword. And he looks at what could threaten the success uh, and the growth and the ultimate destiny of the Japanese Empire. And he sees two powers. One is Great Britain, but more importantly is, is the United States. Now notice we haven't talked about Germany yet in terms of Japan. We don't have to yet. Uh, 
but he has seen uh, intervention and expansion in action. Again, Japan is an island nation. He fought in the Russo-Japanese War when the Japanese went to war with Russia. He's fought against the Chinese. He knows the kind of power that a mainland superpower can bring. And he sees the United States in 1941 as a real threat. And unlike most people, he looks at it in a very practical way. He looks at, if they're going to hurt us, how can they do it? And he sees without a shadow of a doubt that the most dangerous and effective way for the Americans to hurt Japan is to attack the homeland. And if they're going to attack the homeland, they're not going to march into it. That is one of the true benefits of being an island nation, is that no one's going to march onto your soil in an invasion. Ask Britain. It's helped them a lot over the last, say, 2,000 years. So Yamamoto looks long and hard at where things are going, and he sees the American strength in their navy. Now, where do the Americans keep their navy? Well, the Americans keep their navy at a base in Hawaii called Pearl Harbor. They did keep them in San Diego, mind you. President Roosevelt requested that the navy be moved from San Diego uh, to Hawaii. So that's why they're there. And it's a fairly recent move. I mean, they really only move it because of the overtures of aggression by Japan. But Admiral Yamamoto believes if you have a strategic and, and preemptive strike on the American Navy, you can disable them before they can really hurt you. Yes, it will bring the United States into full-scale war with Japan, but it's war on your terms, and that's going to be really important. The Japanese want to fight this war on their own terms. If they can't do that, they really can't find the success they want. It's what's going to make our discussion today so important. December 7th, 1941 comes. The Japanese launch a full-scale assault on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. And the damage and destruction that they do is everything Admiral Yamamoto hoped it would be. By the end of this morning, a day that will live in infamy, the destruction's overwhelming. The Japanese take very little of it. The Americans will lose completely two battleships. The USS Arizona is still there on the bottom of the sea. It's a memorial. If you've been there, it's a touching place. It's a sobering place. You're surrounded by crystal blue waters. Hawaii is a paradise. And you're standing above a tomb for hundreds of sailors. There's still people in there. So when you go there, I know it's very easy to have a good time in Hawaii. Keep things in perspective. The USS Arizona is all that remains as far as being sunk. The rest were salvaged. Two more battleships recovered. Three battleships damaged. One battleship permanently grounded. Three cruisers damaged. Three destroyers damaged. Three other ships damaged. 188 aircraft destroyed. 159 aircraft damaged. 2,403 Americans killed. 1,178 wounded. I'm not reading that because I want to bore you with statistics. I'm reading that because it's important. Because Yamamoto scored the big victory he wanted. He wanted to not only disable, but eliminate America's Pacific Fleet and the only threat to Japanese success. And he feels that he did so. You know, one of the reasons I'm glad we can talk about this event today is because I think we're finally, as a nation, in a place where we can. A lot of people ask me, when does something leave the realm of political science 
or journalism and enter the realm of history. I think something leaves that realm whenever you can leave it. I think not until only recently could we as Westerners or Americans talk about World War II, the Japanese or the Germans, without having a stake in it. You know, when we talked about us versus them, we really believed it was us versus them. And part of that is that you don't ever give the other side the adequate distance to study them. Now, I'm not saying you have to like the Japanese. If, if you have a strong opinion of it, that's fine. But as historians, we have to try to keep a level head as much as possible so we can study this and interpret it the right way. It does require a certain amount of discipline and objectivity to do that. And until only recently, I think we were still pretty subjective about it. I mean, my grandfather fought the Japanese in the Pacific. My mother's father uh, fought in Europe. Uh, his brother was killed. So, again, you know, 10 years ago, still, I don't know that we can, as historians, deal with this appropriately without this good versus evil, up versus down, black versus white sort of dynamic. But I think we can now. And when you do that, you see the motivations and the decisions of a person like uh, Isoroku Yamamoto, and you, you understand it a little better. But one of the things Yamamoto really wanted to achieve with this, he knew it would be viewed as, you know, him as the bad guy. He was fine with that. He wanted to completely disable this fleet. If the fleet wasn't completely disabled, uh, then it was for nothing. It was for naught. He didn't want one aircraft carrier to leave that base. And he thought he got them all. What he didn't know was he actually got all but three. And three aircraft carriers is not a lot by any stretch of the imagination. But when your goal is total elimination, three aircraft carriers can do a lot of damage. After Pearl Harbor, after the Imperial Japanese Navy uh, recedes back toward Japanese waters, a few surprises happen. And those few surprises come from an unlikely place. The three aircraft carriers, those are the big ones, that he failed to destroy because they weren't at Pearl Harbor. They are the USS Hornet, the USS Yorktown, and most importantly, the USS Enterprise. Star Trek fans, now you know why that name's so important. These aircraft carriers will get some measure of revenge against the Japanese. They will attack uh, the Marshall Islands. They won't capture them, but they'll attack them a few weeks later. They'll attack Wake Island a few weeks later. They're clearly a problem for the Japanese. And Yamamoto realized they weren't at Pearl Harbor. He missed them. They're going to be a thorn in his side. They're not much. They're all the Americans have. But they are dangerous. So he sits back as 1942 moves forward and thinks about a way to strike them. And he comes up with a plan he thinks is pretty foolproof. About 1,300 miles away from Oahu, from Hawaii, there's a tiny island. I mean, when you see it from above, it's pretty insignificant looking, uh, called Midway Island. And it's got a few hangars on it. It's got mostly airstrips on it. But when you think about the Pacific Ocean and the fighting in the Pacific, a tiny island with an airstrip and some fuel is a matter of life and death. I mean, when you think about the Pacific Ocean, it can feel like it goes on forever. And when you're living in a world of planes and ships powered by uh, gasoline, petroleum, you eventually run out of that. So, 
if all of your petroleum is at your home base and you're trying to take off from there, you have a very limited range. Because remember, if you're in a plane, you have to fly a certain distance until half your gas runs out and then turn back around so the other half of your gas tank gets you back home. But if you can put a refueling base, for example, on an island, even a small one, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, well, you've uh, just effectively quadrupled your effective attack range. You see what I mean? If a plane just flies forever, it has turns around it at halfway and lands at empty, where it came from. But if you can fly a full tank, land somewhere, refuel, and then fly again, my goodness, look at how far you can travel. And that's true for everybody, the Japanese and the Americans alike. Shortly after Pearl Harbor, by the way, the Japanese continue their uh, reign of terror, their blitzkrieg, if you will. They attack the Philippines, Guam, and Wake, again held by the United States, not anymore. And they even go after British holdings in Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong. So again, these are uh, areas they didn't want to attack uh, for fear of starting a war, but now they're all in. Yamamoto understands that. So Yamamoto's next strike is going to be uh, similar to Pearl Harbor. That's how he wants it to be. He wants to finish off the American Pacific Fleet by luring them into a trap right near where Pearl Harbor was. Again, the further east you strike the more likely you are to strike fear into the hearts of your opponents. And Yamamoto believed if you attacked Midway Island, which is again about 1,300 miles, which sounds like a lot, but it really isn't in the Pacific, away from Hawaii, you would chase everyone in Hawaii out of it all the way back to the, the west coast of California to shore up defenses there. After Pearl Harbor happened, the Americans were uh, committed to never letting it happen again. They put soldiers, ground troops, artillery, everything in Hawaii to protect Pearl Harbor. Well, that was why Yamamoto didn't go for another strike on Hawaii. He believed it was too dangerous, but Midway was just for, uh, far enough away where you could still have a strike, be successful, and hopefully you know, elicit the response you want. Now, at the same time, uh, a new admiral has taken over command of the American fleet named Chester Nimitz. And Nimitz is a pretty hands-on guy. He's a Texan, you know, so you know how that's going to be. Um, he's very sure of himself. He's very sure in his training. He's a lifelong military commander. And he really believes the Japanese are going to come back and strike again. Now, how do you collect intelligence on the Japanese in the middle of the ocean? It's very hard. Well, this is an interesting point where a lot of what I would describe as new technologies are are coming into play. One of the things that Nimitz is experimenting with, and the Navy as a whole really, is dealing with code breaking. And that's something that the Americans were very, uh, I guess you could say, ahead of the curve regarding. And they were listening to Japanese transmissions all the time. And one of the things that the Americans heard was that there was a discussion over and over and over again of an attack on a base the Japanese would call AF. And a lot of people weren't sure what AF meant. Many of the higher-ups in Washington believed that AF, because they were getting this intelligence, uh, was a strike on, believe it or not, Alaska. The Aleutian Islands, the, the island chain that comes off of Alaska, uh, does extend pretty close to Asia. And the Japanese believed that made them susceptible to attack. Uh, after Pearl Harbor, for example, two of those uh, aircraft carriers we, we mentioned, the USS Hornet and the USS Enterprise. The Enterprise was a guide ship. 
uh, actually launched what they called the Doolittle Raid, which was a launch of 16 bombers into the mainland of Japan itself. Didn't do a lot of damage, uh, but it did damage the Japanese psychologically, letting them know the Americans can strike them. They are an island, but they can be reached. So it kind of put the pressure on Yamamoto as well. But they kept hearing this, this discussion of AF uh, and, and an imminent attack on AF, and they weren't sure what it was. And again, I will stress, uh, the Americans in Washington continuously believed that AF was an attack or invasion of Alaska, which would ultimately happen. But Nimitz didn't believe it. Nimitz believed they were, the Japanese, uh, were dead set on the Pacific, and the attack was going to come there. So Nimitz did something pretty creative, which I think is awesome. Uh, he ordered a false communication to be passed from Midway, claiming that their fresh water sources and supplies had run out, and there was an emergency. That wasn't true, but Nimitz wanted to see who else was listening, and sure enough, the Japanese would later say, just a few days later, that AF, target AF, was experiencing a water crisis. They were listening to us, listening to them, listening to us, I think. But Nimitz had his clarification. He put out a fake water crisis at Midway. The Japanese took the bait and said that AF had a water crisis. Well, that means to them AF is Midway. And what was meant to be another Pearl Harbor was going to be no such thing. Admiral Yamamoto never knew this. Admiral Yamamoto believed he was going to attack Midway completely unknown. What he didn't realize was the Americans were way ahead of him. And they took those three uh, aircraft carriers they had, Hornet, Yorktown, and Enterprise, and had them lying in wait. Now, there's a lot of stories around the Battle of Midway. And again, we don't get into the battles as far as the X's and O's too much. Uh, it's just too difficult. But one of the great ones is the uh, USS Yorktown. You see, between Pearl Harbor and Midway, there was a battle in a place called the Coral Sea. And the Yorktown took a huge amount of damage. It was towed away, and the Japanese believed it was disabled. It was gone. But whenever they came to Midway and the American fleet was waiting, those three ships were there, and they were convinced that Yorktown had been destroyed. They actually drugged the broken-down Yorktown back, fixed it up, patched it up. Not very well, by the way. It's kind of the ship that wouldn't die. Listener Chris told me in his email he named his... Um, his hoopty car in college, the Yorktown, because it wouldn't die. I had a similar one. I compared it more to the Exorcist, though. You know, it was possessed. It wouldn't die. Um, big Evil Dead fan. But at any rate, um, <clears throat> that's kind of the Yorktown. And the battle occurs. Now, even though the Americans were ready, we'll make this uh, reasonably simple. The Japanese, when they got to Midway, actually were able to run a few strafes of bombing runs. And it did look like another Pearl Harbor all over again. Uh, but the American aircraft carriers were able to do their jobs. Uh, there was a pretty catastrophic event for a series of tor torpedo uh, bombers, aircraft, American aircraft. 36 out of 42 were destroyed. So again, this is a, a very somber occasion in the end. But it did allow for dive bombers to successfully take out uh, the four Japanese aircraft carriers on site. And here's another great story. Again, I'm not. I'm, I'm sort of swimming in details now, but I want to make sure we get all of this. Whenever Yamamoto came to Midway, tiny piece of land, he had four aircraft carriers with him: the Akagi, the Kaga, the Soryu, and the Hiryu. And those four ships, plus two more, were at Pearl Harbor 
I mean, so whenever Midway was occurring and the Americans saw those ships, they believed that this was revenge for Pearl Harbor. They said, these are the same guys. I mean, like, not even a little bit. These are literally the same people that bombed us December 7th, 1941. So the Battle of Midway occurs from June 3rd to June 7th of 1942. And again, all the details are there. A lot of the survivors' accounts are really helpful for this. A lot of back and forth. In the end, the Americans had that advanced intelligence. Uh, all four Japanese aircraft carriers are destroyed. It was a trap the Japanese were not aware of. I could just hear Admiral Akbar now. It's a trap! They thought they were trapping the United States quite different. Uh, and in the end, they're forced to retreat. Midway is a huge victory. Many will say the first true victory of the Pacific War. But what I'm more worried about than the details, the aftermath, uh, is what happens, why we should care, why it still matters. And I think this is an interesting debate we're starting to have. And again, as historians, World War II really hasn't been the realm of the historian yet. I studied the Seven Years' War. That was 250 years ago. I'm a nonpartisan there. Um, and only now are new generations of historians digging into World War II in terms of causes and effect. And this will continue, which is great, uh, that we can have these debates. So here's the real question. What impact does it have? Well, I think the biggest impact the Battle of Midway has is that even though it's early, even though it's still unknown, even though America is still recovering from Pearl Harbor and will build many more ships than they had at the time, Midway is kind of a turning point in that it changes the pace and the dictate of the of the war. What will the war look like? You know, the Japanese always said from the beginning, they could only win this war if they were fighting the war they wanted to on their terms. Look at Pearl Harbor. Look at Coral Sea. Look how they captured the Philippines. But after Midway, that script was flipped. The Americans were not victims. The Americans were not secondary players. And the Japanese weren't calling the shots anymore. Because after Midway, you see some pretty incredible things happen. New campaigns begin. And these campaigns are zeroed in on capturing mainland Japan. Now, they're a long ways away. And there are still many, many battles to come. Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, these sort of things. Um, the Philippines. But... It's happening. It's underway. And without Midway, none of that gets started. None of that gets started. So why? Well, a lot of people, I mean, and almost immediately after it happens, start to say, well, the Americans destroy four Japanese aircraft carriers. They can't recover from that. They lost too many men. But the fact of the matter is, um, only about 25% of their total manpower were on those cruisers. So they could survive that. And they did survive that. But here's one of the amazing things. And again, as historians, we love logistics. Over 40% of their maintenance staff, that is people who are mechanics, people who understand how ships work, how to fix them, how to patch them, how to rebuild them, were lost at the Battle of Midway. And in the future, the Japanese will desperately need those people. And they don't have them. They were lost at Midway. So this is not a battle that's going to end a war. This is not a battle that is going to appear as a turning point even at the time. But this is a battle that's an investment. This is going to pay dividends in the future. There's still a lot of fighting left in the, in the Pacific Ocean. And many, many people will die. But Midway is an, an early, I mean it's early, but it's still a turning point. Uh, that I think is worth uh, some studying. 
The Yorktown, by the way, will sink at midway. Uh, it still rests at the bottom of the ocean. That thing would not die. It did, it did sink uh, at midway. Uh, and believe it or not, it was rediscovered in 1998 by a guy named Robert Ballard, who's like, you know, a modern Indiana Jones. Robert Ballard rediscovered Titanic. Robert Ballard rediscovered the Bismarck, uh, the German ship. So it's fitting that he would also rediscover the Yorktown, which remains at the bottom of the sea, and by all accounts is still in pretty good shape. You can see the paint job, you can see a lot of the supplies and technology still there. Uh, but Midway is one of those important ones. And there's a lot of battles in the Pacific Ocean, and there's a lot more on this, by the way. If you want to look further into it, there's endless documentaries and books. I made it very simple, but it's sort of your early crash course in it. But there's a lot you can take from it. Uh, I do think studying it from the Japanese perspective, uh, from that of Admiral Yamamoto, is a useful exercise. And again, it's one I don't think that was possible, um, you know, even as late as 10 years ago. So I'm glad we can sit down and do this now. By the way, what comes of Admiral Yamamoto, one of the great classic moments of the war, uh, and just textbook FDR, FDR will give an order that basically says, get Yamamoto. And what happens is the Americans use their code breaking in 1943 to determine where the Admiral will be. He's going to get on a plane and fly around a certain area to study where his troops are and how they're lined up. And the Americans actually send, like, sniper planes after him. And they shoot him down. Uh, and he dies. So Yamamoto, again, is a person who's deeply involved in this. I mean, seminal world events like Pearl Harbor, like Midway we think of as just executed by, quote-unquote, the Japanese, were really the brainchild of this one person. Um, and not enough people knew that. But it was enough that FDR sent a special seek-and-destroy mission to kill him. Similar to Osama bin Laden, I suppose. You know, Hitler never had that ending. Uh, but Yamamoto will get his. So, just really great stories here that, again, are beginning to come out as you study all sides. So I'm really excited about it. I think uh, great pick by Chris for this season of wartime. Uh, let's have a great 2016. Let's start it off right. Maybe I'll see you in North Carolina. Thank you for joining us. If you have any recommendations for future episodes, drop them in. Wartimepodcast.com, BradyKreitzer.com, Twitter, or Facebook. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.